Welcome everyone to the Enneagram Journey Podcast. This is episode 45, which is part two of Suzanne's conversation with Enneagram 7, Luke Norsworthy. Luke is the senior minister at Westover Hills Church in Austin and recently wrote a book, God Over Good, Saving Your Faith by Losing Your Expectations of God. This may be our best podcast yet. Luke does a phenomenal job. Suzanne's teaching is really on point and she said a lot of things that I've never heard her say before and I've been the last few years listening intently. And then the Reverend jumps in with some great wisdom about spiritual practices. The group contributed some phenomenal questions. It's just all in all a great conversation and a great talk and a lot to learn. If you like what you're hearing and you would like to hear Suzanne live, she's going to be in Richmond, Virginia, January 4th and 5th, teaching Know Your Number, in San Diego, California, teaching Know Your Number, January 11th and the 12th, and then she's coming to Shreveport, Louisiana, January 24th through the 26th for a three-day conference on relationships and the Enneagram. So if you can make it to any of those, it will be well worth your time. You can find information for those and for all of our Enneagram resources and other spiritual practice tools at lifeinthetrinityministry.com. And please submit questions uh, for Suzanne at theenneagramjourney.org. She opens up this episode by reading from Luke's book, God Over Good, and we're going to go ahead and listen in. I'm reading from the book now. My wife is a neonatal intensive care unit nurse, and I'm fairly certain that she does more important work than I do, as conversations like the following indicate. Lindsay, how was work today? Good. I had a two-pound baby addicted to cocaine who kept trying to die on me. We brought him back to life three times. That's cool. Do you want to guess what cool thing I did today? This is my favorite part. I don't know, Luke. Just tell me. (laughs) Emphasis by me. I got retweeted by N.T. Wright. So, sweetheart, I guess both of us had plenty big days. No, had pretty big days. So, sweetheart, I guess both of us had pretty big days. I've never been one to let something as silly as humility get in the way of my ability to express how I had God figured out more than anyone including my wife. She might want to say that God saved a premature drug-addicted baby, but I'd be quick to let her know that if God didn't also save every other baby, then he wasn't being fair. Okay, now I have so much to say about this, but I want to start with that only a mature seven who's done some work can make fun of himself without it being funny in a passage that's so serious and ask such a big question at the end, which is, she might want to say that God saved a premature drug-addicted baby, but I'd be quick to let her know that if God didn't also save every other baby, then he wasn't being fair. That's one of the big questions of life right there. And that's every response that a seven would have run through real quick. And he did it all with a brilliant piece of writing. So, Lindsay, chime in anytime you want to. Uh, Or don't, if you don't want to. You have permission to do things he doesn't have permission to do. (laughs) But 
what I want to know is if this is maturity or intentionality. How would you differentiate those two? Um, I think there's a place where you have potentially done a work, enough work as a seven and grown enough that this is mature writing and that you didn't have to work too hard to get it to this form. I don't remember spending a whole lot of time on that section of the book. That's how it feels to me. It feels to me like you're saying, like this is who I used to be in terms of the whole thing about humility, and I had a great day because N.T. Wright responded to me. But at the end, what you're saying is, I, I get it that you saved a baby today and I didn't, but how come God isn't saving all of them? And you know you're a pastor. You know that one of the five most frequently asked questions about who God is is all centered around why babies die. Right. Yeah. So what is your personal answer, not your pastor answer, to why God doesn't save all the babies? I would like to think that you know me well enough that both of those answers are going to be pretty consistent. Uh, now sometimes people don't really want an answer in that sort of pastoral situation, and maybe that's what you're referring to. Uh, but my answer is like, I don't know. Like, I don't know why, why God doesn't. Like, I got a, I got a theory that, eh, 70% sure it's right. But um, when it comes down to it, I don't think we get answers to those kind of things. I think we get a story of God stepping into suffering with us. But I don't think we ever get this full, robust uh, theodicy, this explanation of God and suffering. We get a story of the incarnation, of God becoming one of us, of, of dying just as we died and experiencing the full gamut of humanity, which includes loss, which includes the death of his friend Lazarus, who Jesus, even though he knows the end of the story, he still weeps because I think he steps into it. Um, now, as a parent, I, I think nothing equates to losing your kid. And so to some degree, that's only something that, that, God, um, that God the Father would understand is losing Jesus. But... Um, so do you know there are Enneagram numbers who, if they lost a child, would say that it's because they, as parents, didn't do something right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's narcissism, uh, that to think that you're in charge of everything. and Or it's being raised with bad theology. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a cornucopia of reasons for why people say stuff like that. And for some of us, we're just grasping for anything to keep our head above water. And as a pastor, like sometimes I see people grab bad answers to, that get them through the moment. And if it's keeping you going, then sometimes you just deal with the, uh, the ramifications of those down the road. But you just got to stay alive in that moment. And sometimes those answers of, um, well, this is all part of God's plan. Like that gets you through the day. And who, who am I to tell you what's going to get you through one day when you're having to step out of the, uh, out of the ICU as your family's just lost a member? Sure. But... but um, I mean, the direct answer to your question, why does that happen? You know, I think that God creates a world of choice and that involves this, but ultimately, like, those aren't the answers that sustain me as a dad when I'm processing, what if that was my five-year-old kid that got hit by the Ford Bronco? Exactly. None of those things are going to make it tenable. Um, so what numbers on the Enneagram, you've done a lot of Enneagram work, what numbers on the Enneagram do you think live best with mystery? 
Hmm. I mean, that's a great question I should have asked you because you're going to have a better answer. I can riff about what I would guess. Well, you need you to riff because just... we're not switching places. <clears throat> this is my podcast. All right. <laughs> All right, Coach. Um, I mean, you'd like to think that uh, the force wanting to be authentic and, and kind of be, uh, be willing to step in that space would, would almost come somewhat naturally. I would assume fours might be comfortable there. Uh, I think a lot of our best uh, artists, our, our songwriters, a lot of them probably are fours, and often those are the artists that help us see what us theologians can't articulate very well. And so, you know, the, the fours maybe. Um, I would imagine a one, uh, one in their details would probably be uh, pretty abhorrent to that sort of mystery because they want everything in the box. Uh, fives would probably feel pretty paralyzed because they can't figure it out with enough information. Look how good you're doing. He's just rolling them off. As, yeah. Well, yeah, it's very impressive. I think, I, I think uh, a nine would be able to see both sides of things, and so they could see how maybe it's a little bit this, a little bit that. Um, an eight's not going to stop to think about it enough, uh, so they're just going to put an action plan together. Um, your, I mean, your threes... I don't know, maybe if they're the right environment where everyone's saying that, that's what they'll say too. Um, again, they're not going to feel anything. I mean, we're kindred spirits. Uh, I, I want to know your answer to that question. Well, I include sevens, and then I'll give you my answer. Do sevens do good with mystery? Uh, that's an easy bailout. Oh, is it like... like so? Oh, it's a mystery. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, that's, the, that's the way I would go with it. This sort of like the platitude, like mystery kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, like I, I think that's a, a an easy lifeboat to jump to, but maybe it's almost like a um, misnomer of what mystery is. So w when y'all watch these two sevens, are are you realizing that they start out to kind of say um, something to all of us, but they end up just talking to each other? <laughs> and it's like, hey, we could use this. Yeah, that'll work. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm going to do that. You see, I'm offering you. Yeah, I'm taking Like, yeah, that's it. Uh, okay, here's what I think. I'm sorry that sevens are supportive numbers. Supportive of each other. The rest of you are piranhas with your own number. <laughs> Thanks for having my back. Yeah, okay. right? I've got yours. I've learned a lot tonight. Me too. I think none of us do well with mystery. I think fours do well with pain. I think they can bear witness to pain. But I think relationships are such a mystery to fours that they can hardly bear it because it's the most important thing to them. Hmm. And so what I'm trying to lead us all to... Corden, you set up that whole question knowing the answer was wrong. <laughs> I didn't know how you were going to answer. I thought and we were I, it wasn't a setup. We are friends. I just wanted you to represent everybody, and you she, do it so well. She let well. you finish and ask for more numbers. Yeah. Tell so, me more wrong answers. Okay. We should thank God every day that we didn't have twins. Yeah. <laughs> what I'm... Can you imagine my hair with his mustache? God, I can. And I am now. <laughs> Sorry. What I... Uh, am leading us all to is we don't we don't do well with mystery and i think 
the next step after doing well with doubt is to be able to do well with mystery. I think there's always another step and another level and another step and another level. And I think we, have, we are living in a time that offers so many plausible answers. We don't even really know if they're the answers or not. They're plausible, so we take them. And I think we take them so readily because we can't live with mystery. And I think we can't live with mystery because we weren't taught to. And I think an inability to live with mystery is what causes us to have expectations of God. Is the reason that we're all not good with mystery different for each Enneagram number? I, I think have two it, questions. I've got to follow up after that. <laughs> I think it is different for every number, but I think there is an overarching piece that we all fall under, and that is that we really live in the illusion that we have far more control than we have. Yeah. And so when y'all are both teachers, you're a pastor, all the things that you do to help people, and people are going to turn to the Enneagram master and their pastor for help with dealing with mystery, coming to grips with that. Is there a different answer then for everyone? So Luke and I were talking earlier about someone who we're really confident is a certain anagram number and has a huge following and giving advice, or I, I talked about this to him, that was clearly from their anagram number. And all these people, these hundreds of thousands of people aren't going to be able to follow that advice. Well, I, I think for sure there's not a broad stroke answer. And I, I think a broad stroke answer negates the question. So I, I think um, I would probably walk through all nine numbers. So I'm going to do that real quick about why it's hard for them to live with mystery. So I think it's hard for ones to live with mystery because they have to be right or correct. And they have to be right or correct because they don't think they're good. So they lean too heavily into their correctness because they don't think that they think they are, they are flawed in some way. And the way they make up for that is by being right or being correct. I think twos can't live with mystery because they're, they are so threatened by loss in relationship. So twos in that space of threat can't wait for things to play out relationally. They try to make things play out. They go after answers. They go after what they want because they can't live with the threat of the mystery of not knowing how things are going to work out. And start noticing now that the answers to how we can't live with mystery are a, an exact measure almost of how much faith we don't have. Like, it, it, mystery requires believing in something bigger than you that's happening beyond you, and we can't do that, right? Threes, uh, I think, struggle to live with mystery only when it blocks a goal or their effectiveness or their efficiency or them bringing to fruition what they're trying to create. 
And otherwise, they're dismissive of mystery. It's like, if I don't need to know the answer, I don't care what the answer is. For fours, adding on to what I said about fours' ability to bear witness to pain, which looks like they can live with mystery, I think fours create mystery around themselves and around their behavior in order to level what they consider to be an unlevel playing field. And so if you can create this illusion of things that doesn't exactly define you, then as a four, maybe you can get people to listen to you long enough to know you, to, to really want to know you. Fives, don't live with mystery. Well, they don't talk about it, and they don't accept it. They just research until they know what the answer is, or they take the question off the table. They don't live with mystery. Sixes are drowning in their inability to handle mystery. And they're drowning in that inability to handle mystery in a culture where what keeps balance at an arm's length from sixes is all of this anxiety that's manufactured by the culture to make us afraid. Sevens create mystery in order to not have to deal with it. Eights make up answers, and eights believe that they can affect reality. So if something's mysterious and they can't figure out the answer, they give an answer. And then they kind of expect you to buy it. It's like this answer's as good as any, so we're going to go with this. And nines, they are so intent on not being affected by life on being unaffected by life is a better way of saying that. They're so intent on maintaining their peace and not having that be interrupted by the things that happen in life that they use mystery to protect themselves. That's good. Thank you. The, the concept, not that you're not a theologian. I was. Yeah, but, but you, you see, I think if I get to do my work, pastors get different questions. Once people know themselves, it changes the questions they ask about God and about the way life works. And once we get to a new set of questions, then all of these uh, theologians who have answers that were taught to them at least have to re-examine them. And that's what God over good is all about. Mm-hmm. re-examining the answers and asking new questions. And I I love this book. It loves you. And I, <laughs> I am a two on the Enneagram. I cannot be loved by a book. But I'll go with being loved by the author. <laughs> Deal. Okay, now listen. I want, I want to do two more things here. Okay. And then we're going to do some Q&A unless you want to do something else important. We're getting toward the end of the book here, and, and you've done a lot of work that we get to do with you or that we get to watch you do. And then you say, I don't make any assumption that my faith has arrived at its destination. What I have arrived at is the conviction that faith is not a destination but a process. If faith isn't moving forward, it's dying.
And I think that is a great way to talk about mystery. There's a point where we just accept that some babies live and some babies die. And we just accept that God's in that too. Mm -hmm. And it's a mystery today and it's going to be a mystery tomorrow and next week and next year because without the mystery, there's no need for the faith. Yep. I, I feel like you said that better than I could. I think faith is this, this ongoing process. And uh, Maya Angelou had this line where she says, um, whenever someone says, I'm a Christian, Maya Angelou says, I'm always surprised because I think, I'm still working on it. I haven't fully arrived yet. And I, I think there's something to that. You know, the Apostle Paul says, not that I have already obtained all this, but one thing I have, forgetting what is behind and pressing on to what is ahead. And so I think this this journey of faith is this continual process where, where we've never fully arrived yet, but we're on this this process of being transformed. This, you know, Paul says in Philippians 1 that uh, he who began a good work in you will carry it on until completion. And sometimes the, the attitude of, like, I've got this all figured out, I've got all the answers, is an assumption that I have already arrived, that I've already been completed, and, and none of us have. And I think faith is this acceptance of, of trusting what you haven't seen instead of the easy temptation just to focus on what you do see but to move beyond that and to trust that something more is going on that you can't you can't always touch you, you can't always put in a box you can't always contain it but it, it's there and faith is accepting that what is transcendent is enough to transform me and that what is ahead is enough to sustain me and that what i need for one more step is what i've been offered and what I've been offered is not the answer, the destination, but just enough for one more day and one more moment. E.L. Doctro isn't. Have you ever read him? Oh man, I. What's I can, the name again? E.L. Doctro. That sounds like a condition. <laughs> it, it, sounds Latin. Yeah, I got that E.L. Doctro. Yeah, I know. It's, it smells weird. <laughs> I, I, I have a word for the world. Never put yourself between two sevens. Okay, um, E.L. Doctorow is a, a novelist who is a really good writer, but you you got to work at it. Okay. And, you know, I, if I read a novel, I don't really want to work. No, you're right? having fun. But he says about writing something that I've started saying about the spiritual journey. And he says about writing that when you're writing a book, you can only see, it's like being on a dark road at night. Yeah. You can only see as far as the headlights, but you can make the whole journey that way. Mm -hmm. And that's about mystery. And I don't think in 2019, is this 2018 or 2019? It's almost. 2018. Sorry, I've been working on my calendar today. I, I, I'm, I'm still fully cognizant. You're I just have been doing calendar work all day. When the episode airs, it might be. So, um, 19. I, I don't think anybody I run into is content to see as far as the headlines. Um, I, I think people throughout human history have struggled with that. I mean, that's the, the Israelites in the wilderness where God says, I'm going to provide food that's manna, which is the Hebrew word for what is this. And so it falls from the sky. And so what do they do? They, they hoard it. They try to stockpile it. And God says, no, I'm going to give you enough for one more day. And that's Jesus' prayer in uh, the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. And what, what we want is our lifetime's bread. Yep. I want enough for a decade. Um, but what I think God gives us is your daily bread. 
and, and that's just not the sustenance to keep you going in your energy, but I think it's the sustenance to keep your faith alive, that it's just, it's enough for a little bit more. And for somehow in, in God's wisdom that the daily bread that we receive is supposed to teach us something about the spiritual journey, that you, you can't hoard it, like you, you can't master it, you can't have your, your, your Sam's Club with enough for the next 18 months. You get one day at a time because it reminds you that you are not the master of your own domain that you are not in charge of your faith, but it is a, a gift that you receive every day. Yep. Is, is that a hard spiritual thing to come grips with for a seven? Well, I mean, because we're always wanting more. Like what I have right now is not enough for me. I always need more and more. And the invitation for spirituality is that I need less and less. Like uh, we're around Christmas time and Christmas time seems to be the season where we say, I need more, I need more, I need more. And what I think healthy spirituality says is that what you have right now is already more than you need. And I think that includes the, like, the intellectual categories that you put God in. Like, you probably know a lot about God. If you're a person of faith and you've been doing this for all, you probably have a lot of boxes that you can say, this is what God is like. And I think spirituality says, even if I have less, it's enough. Richard Rohr says, if you can define it, it's not God. That's good. Yeah, he's good. He's on to something. <laughs> yeah. Enneagram Q&A for Suzanne and for Luke, and also clearly got over good questions. Have some fun with it. Uh, have some fun with oh, it. I am not nearly as funny as the seven, so I'm not even going to try. Um, but I do have a question because you shared about building your brick wall, and then there was this moment you were afraid of the water. I'm using your own analogy, right? Yeah. And then you just weren't afraid of the water. Was there like some sort of experience that did that for you? Um, and to tie it back to the Enneagram, do you feel like either learning or knowing about your Enneagram number helped with that in a way? I don't think there's ever really one moment. And I think that's one of the things that's frustrating to me about how faith should work. And like, so when, so when you write a book, you, you want to have these stories that kind of punctuate this is the moment that it happened. So I tell a story when I'm in a worship gathering, all of a sudden I can't sing anymore. And like that did happen and that's real. But in a lot of the ways, it's this um, conglomeration of a bunch of experiences. Uh, I've got a guy, a friend of mine uh, that I talk about in the book who I refer to as Pen Pal Paul because he lives in Australia. And so my daughter's like, oh, that's like your pen pal, Paul. And I'm like, all right, I like it. And it's alliterative, so I'm going to go with it. But he, he's a filmmaker and so he has this story that he's working on, the, the Bali Nine, which is a crazy story. Go home and Google that if you want. Um, and so he's developing this script for this feature film about it. And he's got a couple things that he needs a, a character to do to kind of move the, the story along. But that one singular character that actually does, doesn't really exist. And so they make what, what's called a composite character that kind of brings a few elements together. And I think in faith, we, we like to have these these singular moments that do like, oh, all, all of a sudden I realize that mystery is okay and I, I let free. Um, and sometimes when we narrate our story, we create these composite moments that kind of pull it all together. But I think that the spiritual journey is more like the, the one day at a time, like the, the one step at a time of, um, okay, I can keep on going. Uh, there, there was a moment that was really formative for me when I, I started reading Richard Rohr for the first time that uh, I think it was um, Everything Belongs. Uh, the book showed up in an Amazon box, and back then it wasn't like free two-day shipping. It was like seven days or whoever knows how long it takes. And so An by eternity. the time, yeah, eternity. And by the time it arrived, I forgot which books I had ordered. And so I opened it up. I'm I'm literally walking out my front door in Denton. I'm going to go for a run. I have my iPod on, which tells you how long ago the story was. 
I got my playlist, I'm ready to go. And I see the box, I'm like, well, I'm just gonna open this and, and see what books I ordered because I forgot. And it's this book by Richard Rohr who I'd heard someone reference, never read any of his stuff before. And I started reading it. And next thing I know, like my playlist has ended. I'm sitting on my kitchen table um, and it's it's halfway through the book and I'm going, oh my goodness, this is like this this light bulb that has gone off for me that I've never been able to express what I think God is doing in my life right now. And this gave me language to express something. And so that was like a really formative moment for me to kind of hear as someone who grew up as uh, an evangelical, the perspective of a Franciscan priest. And so that, that was helpful. But like I said, I mean, there's, I can't reduce it just to one. And the question about the Enneagram was, did the Enneagram help? Yeah. The Enneagram is extremely helpful for me, but I didn't know the Enneagram until I was first introduced to it um, because I was going out to Albuquerque to uh, do an interview with Richard Rohr. And I was like, oh, I need to figure out what this Enneagram because he wrote a book about it. And it was probably the second or third time that I'd talked to Richard Rohr that I first was introduced to it. And since then, it's it's given me vocabulary and it's been so helpful, but I didn't... I didn't know it during more of that formative time that I talk about in the book. I think the way the Enneagram helps with the faith journey is that it explains you to you. So you don't have to beat yourself up for not getting it last time or for requiring, you know, evidently Paul couldn't see and then it changed him forever. And it takes me a little more than that. Like I have to have experience after experience after experience. But the Enneagram explains to me why I have to do that. And so then it changes the focus, so that it's not on me not getting it, it's on me understanding how I'm getting it. And I think that makes a big difference. Did you have any classes with Richard Beck? Yeah, Richard's a good friend of mine. And how as a seven, looking back, you didn't know you were a seven back then when you were having classes with Well, technically I never had classes with, my dad's a psychologist and taught with Richard. My okay. dad was actually his first psychology professor when he was in college. And so we go, we go back. You go back, okay. But um, so I, I didn't actually have a class, and I didn't know the Enneagram back then. Um, but it would have been so great if I did. And you've read his book, Unclean. I've read everything he's written. Uh, he's he's someone that I I I think I was talking with maybe a couple months ago. Um, preached at his church out in Abilene, where he's an elder, and. Like his work, Uncleans, out, outstanding. Authenticity of Faith. Have you read that book? Uh, it's his least read book, but it's my favorite. Like the first couple chapters of that might actually be the reason I started my podcast. Because I was like, I need an excuse to talk to Richard about all this stuff. So I'm glad that we're both fans of Richard Beck. He's a good one. Luke, Laura? you look really nervous that I have this microphone right now. I am, because you've known me well, for way too long. I, I have, and Lindsay and I have just been over here trying to think about what we could ask you to really get you out of that headspace and that immediate answer that you can go to intellectually. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Lindsay said that I need to go to the girls. And so I want to talk. <laughs> How dare you? I thought we were friends. Well, we are, and that's why I get to ask <laughs> you the hard questions. Okay, deal. Okay, so... What are you putting into practice and what are you planning to put into practice for the girls? Because they're Avery's 10, Audrey, uh, Adeline's seven, okay, and Audrey is four. So they're coming up on asking some big questions, big mm -hmm. faith questions. What are you planning to do to help with their construction of their faith so that maybe their deconstruction looks different than yours did? Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a question for a lot of us. I mean, that's one that I've gotten multiple emails from people asking that same sort of question because I think it's a, a real tangible one for those of us who've kind of had a spiritual uh, uh, morph that's going on and we don't want our kids to have to kind of go through the same thing. Um, there's a story I tell in the book about uh, when Avery asked, spoiler alert, sorry if this is messing things up for you, but she asked if Santa Claus is real or not and Lindsay was gone. She's off at Target. And so Avery asked me this question. And I have this moment of crisis because one of my biggest fears about teaching our kids about Santa is are we creating kind of like a placeholder for what God is? Like that you have this benevolent creature that we describe who does good things for you if you act right. Uh, and eventually we tell you, oh, it's all just this, this muse or this, this, this ruse that we put on you. And one of my um, big fears is that to set up a faith that looks just like that. And so, long story short, what I should have said was, well, when your mom gets home, we'll kind of explain this to you. Instead, like I answered the time, and uh, and when Lindsay got home, she was not very happy about it. Um, uh, I think I actually could hear her crying while she was in the shower that night, sobbing. But, like, to be fair, we didn't have very good water pressure. So, like, it's <laughs> it's not that loud of tears. So what I, like the answer to that is like I'm trying to be like as honest as I can and not feel like my job is to prevent my girls from an early age from having to deal with the mysteries. And when they ask a question of, okay, so if God created the world in seven days um, and the sun, moon, and the stars aren't made on the first day, how can it be a day and a night if the, the sun doesn't exist just yet? Like I would want to say that's a really good question. And Let's, let's think about that. And I don't want to feel like I need to give them some simplistic answer that reduces their curiosity because I feel like what's... I just got to tell you, Methodist children don't ask those kinds of questions. They don't? Not a chance. What questions do they ask? Uh, uh, not those. So, uh, and, you know, what's going to happen is their responses to finding out, Lindsay, this is going to help, depends on their Enneagram number. So the same thing happened to Corey and Jenny. Jenny's our second oldest. Corey's her husband. Jenny is one of my apprentices, so she's been with me four weekends a year for the last three years. One of those weekends, right before Christmas, Corey is tucking Elle in bed, and we think that Elle's a three. Now, you know you don't get to assign numbers to children unless you're me. <laughs> and they're my grandchildren. I wouldn't assign numbers to your children, but um, we think she's a three. So Elle is crying, and Corey said, Elle, what's wrong? She said, well, we went to the library today, and while we were at the library, the, we, the librarian read us a story about Christmas and about Santa Claus, and this girl said Santa Claus isn't real, and then all the other kids said Santa Claus isn't real, and this, my friend was crying, and I said to her, it's okay, Santa Claus is real, and then the librarian said, no, Santa Claus is not real, and she's crying, crying. And so Corey said to her, oh, Elle, I'm so sorry you found out about Santa Claus that way. And she said, I don't care about Santa Claus. I felt stupid. <laughs> she didn't want to be a failure in front of people. Exactly. So I'm just saying it, it, it just depends on what number Avery is. Yeah. I'm, Fret not. What, so Avery, we're 99.999% sure she's a one. At, and there's... Tell everybody how old Avery is. 
She's 10. And for the last five years, we've thought that she is a one because she's more responsible than me. Like, she would be like, hey, guys, wake up. It's school time. Uh, and... That's going to go in my next book. Yeah. Questions for define, deciding whether or not you're a one. Are you more responsible than Luke Norsworth? <laughs> I, like, there needs to be a scale. Like, if you're, like, 14 and more responsible... <laughs> Doesn't mean much, but like when you're five and like, more responsible, it means a lot. But I'm not sure it's about Avery. True, but <laughs> yeah. So, but I, I feel like we're fairly certain that she's she's a one. She's got a few other things which I wouldn't. I'm not going to talk about in, in this setting. But um, yeah, I, I I want her to know what's right. Sure. And I want her to to. So what do you do with this? Brian McLaren says, uh, and you know, Brian is a uh, four. Yeah. Brian says that as an evangelical, when people in his parish or his church asked him, sorry. Well played. Yeah, sexy name, Paris. Yeah. Parish, evangelical name. Church. church. Got it. Um, he said that uh, he knew that he had to change the direction of his journey when he was answering a church member's question and he no longer believed the answer. I'm grateful that I've never really had a moment where I can feel that, yeah. where I felt like I've had to do that. And, you know, Brian and I are at different church settings. Sure. And he, I think there's it was also... a long time ago. I think one of the benefits I have is I have parishioners who've read A New Kind of Christian. Yeah. And people who know some of Brian's work. And I think that's one of the, the benefits that I have is I have people who've stood... Uh, on his shoulders, and so I'm in a different place, and I'm grateful for, for Brian for that. And I'm also grateful that because of him, I don't say evangelical, I say evangelical, because that's how he pronounces it, and he seems so erudite. Changing gears just a little bit, um, what do spiritual disciplines or practices look like for you that help you tap into those things that you said you're far away from? So like Suzanne, you said you're far, far, far away from thinking, and Luke, you're far, far, far away from feeling. Um, and maybe if I can put him on the spot, maybe Joe could talk from the nine perspective, from that way we hit all three triads um, from the doing perspective. Triads. The reverend is in the hot seat. I really don't want to... He only listens two-thirds of the time, so we need to find out if he was listening to your question. <laughs> might have to re-ask the question, but I think I heard it. So. <laughs> what spiritual disciplines for the various stances or the triads? Stances. Uh, stances. No, triads. Stances. Trust me, I was listening the whole time. He said triad. <laughs> he said triads, but meant stances. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to edit this all out. <laughs> Mom and dad aren't fighting. Everything's okay. Eat your dinner. Well, for persons in the aggressive stance, to, in order to get in touch with their feelings, uh, they have to involve themselves in some spiritual practice that is going to put them in a situation where they are going to experience uh, others on a feeling level. So a great practice for any of the three sevens and eights is to involve yourself in a, some spiritual practice where you are working in a soup kitchen, uh, where you're dealing with homeless people and having to deal with the feelings that you are engaged with when you're, or working in a hospital situation where you are a volunteering among those who are sick and hurting and handicapped. Um, at the church where I am currently assigned to serve, we have a special needs ministry. 
And so get involved in as volunteering, working with peer persons on that level. Uh, it causes then something within the aggressive number to uh, begin to be in touch with some of those feelings and let those begin to rise uh, and be challenged that way. For those who are in the withdrawing stance, we have to do Which things... Which is fours, fives, and nines. Four, fives, and nines. We have to do things that pull us out of that withdrawing uh, into uh, active motion in terms of uh, spiritual practice or spiritual discipline. So it might be uh, praying prayer beads. It might be um, walking a labyrinth. It might be doing some activity that is going then to involve ourselves more in worship experiences that's going to pull us out of the stepping back that we do in uh, our withdrawing number into an active experience of uh, involving ourselves perhaps in a Lexio Divina group where you're not just doing Lexio Divina, but you're having to share with other persons in the group uh, some of those thoughts that you're having, spiritual thoughts and expressions. Um, for those in the dependent number, they are, they are pretty much um, connected to other people. So the challenge for them is to be less connected to other people and draw themselves back into uh, something that's going to cause them to have to think. So to read spiritual authors, to read Richard Rohr, as Luke was saying, to read N.T. Wright, to read Marcus Borg, to uh, read Brian McLaren, it, something that's going to challenge their thinking ability and cause them to have to think for themselves, particularly sixes who are so eager to um, accept what authority teaches them and what authority has to say about religion and spirituality and church and so forth. Uh, that really is a challenge for sixes then to have to discover for themselves what their experience, their own experience of God might be. So that's what I would say. That's way better than what I was going to say. <laughs> that was a really good answer. Uh, I would also say for sevens, uh, going and watching A Star is Born, because that movie's amazing, and like I cried the whole time. So that's my, is that a, I don't know if that's an official church spiritual practice, but it should be. It is, it, it is. And let okay, me before you, you say what you're going to say, because I know what you're going to say, let me just say one thing. <laughs> well, I, I don't, I'm not sure that we covered well the stances. So let's just, let me just put out that uh, stances are determined by which of the three centers of intelligence is repressed, thinking, feeling, or doing. And triads are determined by which of the three is dominant, thinking, feeling, or doing. And we're talking right now about stances. Fours, fives, and nines are in the withdrawing stance, and they're doing repressed. Ones, twos, and sixes are in the dependent stance, and they're thinking repressed. And threes, sevens, and eights are in the aggressive stance, and they're feeling repressed. Okay, Giuseppe. I think most of the time when we begin within church circles to talk about spiritual practices, we talk about meditation, we talk about prayer, we talk about fasting, we talk about Bible study, uh, and, and those are classical spiritual practices that any of us might be taught within the framework of an institution. Um, James Finley, who teaches in the Living School with Father Richard Rohr, has an incredible, I think an incredible definition 
of a contemplative practice or, uh, or a spiritual practice. And he says it is any act, well, that's pretty broad, <laughs> any act habitually entered into with your whole heart that awakens, deepens, and sustains within you a contemplative experience of the inherent holiness of the present moment. That, that just takes that whole concept and broadens it to a, a place of us finding those experiences in our life that awaken, deepen, and sustain with, within us, this moment's holy. This moment is really holy. Uh, God is present with me in this moment. It could be taking a walk. It could be gardening in the backyard. It could be writing poetry. It could be baking bread. It could be almost anything that is going to touch us in that moment that awakens, deepens, and sustains within us. That, that's the key to it. And when he says any act habitually entered into, so you keep going back to that same act over and over and over because whatever that act is that you are doing is the act of deepening, awakening, deepening, and sustaining within us this moment's holy. God's here and present to me in this moment. And it would be a good idea to pick one that requires thinking, one that requires feeling, one that requires doing, because the thing that you return to over and over will be the thing that you're comfortable with, not your growing edge. I think I'm a nine. Um, I'm still trying to, to do the work, but I'm pretty sure I'm a nine. So I see all the, I do um, identify with seeing, being able to see both sides of everything. Um, but you talk about, the, just culturally speaking, that we all have such a hard time with mystery. And I think about friends who I've had conversations with who are not um, people of any sort of faith, and that one of the major sticking points becomes these unanswerable questions. And it often feels as though being able to say, I don't know, and I'm okay with not knowing, feels like an easy answer um, to say, like, it, it feels like it doesn't provide enough or, um, so I don't know if you have any sort of response, just whether it's Enneagram related or Luke, whether it has to do with, and if you're booking the question that you've gone through with, but that idea of mystery and kind of being okay with it as a person of faith and being able to kind of maybe walk with someone yeah. um, through that who does not have the lens of faith. Yeah. I, I think it's kind of analogous to if, uh, l let's say Jeff here, uh, we just became friends, but let's say Jeff and I have been long-standing friends and he wronged me. Like he, he literally did something terrible to me. And one option for me to be is, oh yeah, I, I forgive you, Jeff. We're cool. And then we just move on. That's, I could say that's forgiveness, mm -hmm. but the relationship will never be the same. But I've extended what I think is this forgiveness to him. So we're good. But under the surface, there's always going to be conflict. And there's another kind of forgiveness that can happen when we go through conflict to get to the other side. And I think it's similar to, to the same idea about mystery. Is There's a mystery where you say, I just don't know. And it's like that flippant forgiveness. Mm -hmm. There's another kind of mystery which says, I'm going to go into the pain of this. And I'm going to, I, I'm going to do my work. I'm going to research. I'm going to try to experience. I'm going to try to... Um, gather as much as I can of information and uh, enough experiences and put the sweat equity into this. And when you get on that side and say, there's a, there's a, 
a limitation to my access to all the information. And I'm going to hold that weight while at the same time holding on to the presence that God is with me in the midst of it. Those are the same things, theoretically, or at least verbally, but I think they're vastly different experiences. I would just say that I, I think a great way to talk with people about anything is to ask questions. And I think we always feel like we have to have an answer when somebody asks. And sometimes that can be a conversation starter instead of a, con of a conversation ender. And you can say, you know, I, I really struggle with that question too. And I'm not sure. What are your thoughts about it? And then you're starting a conversation that can lead to something else. And I, I think one of the things that's really lacking between people who are churched and people who are not churched is conversation because both are making up a lot of stuff about the other one. And so I try to always have conversation starters at hand. You said that A Star is Born was a movie that I guess was a good spiritual practice for you. What do you mean by that? What okay. did that movie do for you? First, that might have been a little hyperbole on my part. Maybe a little bit. <laughs> I've been on that. I guess I just want to know what that movie was, like why it had you sobbing. I think there, there are a handful of movies that I look back on and go, like that really had an effect on me. And often it's because, so like the movie Interstellar with Matthew McConaughey. I mean, I live in Austin, so I have to revere him as the patron saint of my city. But the storyline, a lot of times you just have the same story that's told in different settings. So like Star Wars is really just a Western set in the sky, which is a little bit different than a Western, but it isn't. Um, Interstellar is a story about a dad and a daughter, right? Like don't, don't leave and the tension of a father and pull to, uh, to, to build their world, to save the world, to do their, their work in the world, while also the tension of wanting to be close to their kid. And so I, I think good stories like connect us to some of the, like, these um, like foundational narratives of uh, like, what do you do with your pain? And what do you do when, um, when you, you feel like inside of you is the, the pain that's being, that's being transisted and transmitted to everyone around you? Uh, so I, I think a good story like invites you into like y your own experience with it. And any movie that makes me cry, I think is doing something because I'm a seven and I don't do that very often. You know, one of the problems with recommending movies, you know how people, you see a movie that you love so much and you say to somebody, you have to see this movie. And then they go see it and they go, nah, meh. That's all an Enneagram thing, right? It all depends. This is more like if you're a good person or not. <laughs> like with this movie though. Like if... If you're not a good person, maybe. then you'd go meh. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I'm right. kidding. Anybody else? Um, I just had a question about the triads and stances. I'm pretty sure I'm a six. Like, I'm a six. But how do you? How are you thinking dominant and thinking repressed? Like, that's so confusing to me. That's such a good question. You want to take that? I would, but I got that thing with the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All right. If you can, if you'll just go ahead and cover that question for three, six, nine. So what Joel just said is if you'll do that, it'll save him <laughs> from answering all those emails. So when you are thinking repressed and thinking dominant or feeling or doing, when, when it is the same for you, it's because you're one of the core numbers of the Enneagram. 
which is what 369 are, and those are the numbers that all the other numbers depend on in one way or another. And essentially, it means that you take in information as a six with thinking, but you don't use productive thinking to make sense of the information that you've taken in. In doing, it means that for Joe, that he walks into a room as a nine and he sees what needs to be done. But he doesn't use doing to make sense of that, so he thinks somebody else should do it. It doesn't occur to nines when they walk in and see everything that needs to be done. It, the thought really doesn't occur to them that they should do it. Does that make sense? So when you, you think, oh, that you think about something, but then you don't think about your response. You don't use thinking to respond. You use feelings or doing. And that's why you manage fear with worst-case scenario planning. Because there's all this stuff out there that's scary, but you don't think through whether or not it's legitimately scary. You just move immediately to, so what am I going to do? This doesn't feel good. What am I going to do? People who are feeling repressed take in information with feelings, but they don't use feelings to process that information. And so it, it actually um, is an advantage and a disadvantage in some ways that Joe's a nine and he's a pastor. He uh, is head of congregational care for a 16,000-member church. So it's a gift that he sees what needs to be done in congregational care, but that he doesn't think that he has to do it all. It's not that great a gift at home. <laughs> right? So I think um, it's real important to do stance work. I think that's where the Enneagram really shines. I think it's the first level of really transformative work to do. And I don't think enough people teach about stances, and I don't know why. And I get the confusion, but if you just take a week of information that you took in with thinking, all the worrying that went on about that, all the angst about what to do about it, and then it didn't come to pass, right? All the... So many things you worry about as a six don't happen. If you're able to bring up thinking when you take in the information, then you get to ask yourself questions like, is this likely to happen? Like, I've worried about this before, and it never happened. My mother-in-law went through a whole period of time where she wasn't talking to me, and it's because she was really worried about something else. You know, whatever the story is. If, if you bring up thinking, then you can get to a better place with that. What I really liked that Jamie Ivy shared, something that when she was having that talk, she's a six, and her friend said, so with those thoughts and those anxieties, go ahead and see it all the way through in your mind. How, do, how does it end in your head? And then she has to bring up thinking in, in doing that. So she has the thinking that's unproductive, and then she can turn it into productive thinking by seeing it, whatever the situation is, all the way through to the end. 
Continuing in that sort of vein, Joel gave like a really great example of ways sixes can deal with that. Well, I'm a three, and so I feel that with feelings, but I'm really great at mimicking feelings. Mm -hmm. How do I push myself to have authentic feelings? So um, my language for you being good, did you want to answer this one or you want me to take it? A star is born. The two guys next to me were both threes. They cried too. He never fails me. Um, <clears throat> my language for what you talked about is that threes are personable, but not personal. And so you, f you first have to start with, I'm going to work on being personal. And that means that you're not going to um, cheat yourself and other people by giving what you think is the appropriate emotional response to whatever's happening. There's very seldom any growth in appropriate emotional responses, which is why most of our growth comes in pain and in behaving badly and all that. And the idea that you can set feelings aside, and come back and deal with them later is just not likely. And you know that. You set things aside, you don't come back to deal with them later. And all those feelings that you set aside and didn't deal with were your opportunities to learn how to feel in real time and let somebody else see that. It's hard to do things that you haven't practiced. So instead of taking on this big thing of what I'm going to do is I'm going to start feeling my feelings that no, you're not. So what you decide is I'm going to in real time work on sharing my feelings as they arise with these three people, just these three. I trust these three people. They're not going to um, say, oh, ooh, was that a feeling? Right? We're not very good to one another when we're trying to work on stuff like this. So you pick three. You decide that you're going to share your real feelings with those people. And um, that both teaches you and protects you at the same time. Not everybody's earned the right to know what you feel. And you don't owe everybody a, a window into what you feel but you do owe it to some people and they have earned the right and it's a relationship problem if you can't express them in real time. Um, I, so I'm a six and I go to three in stress and I relate when you're talking about feelings in real time. That's something that um, I've just recently realized that I, I've always thought of myself as a real, I'm, you know, I'm a, a reactive person, an emotional person, but um, I find myself quickly wanting to, if I'm, if I'm in a social situa situation, wanting to quickly put them aside and distract and move on um, until I've had someone see me start, you know, my eyes start to get teary and she just sits and says, let that come up. Mm -hmm. And she just, and, it's, and it, it, it takes everything in me to not change the subject or carry on or whatever. So is that... Um, is that me going to three in stress, or is that part of being a six? 
That's part of being a six, and it's a multi-level question. So there's a lot there. It's a great question. So what happens is that most circumstances for sixes have authority figures, and it's usually not you. And even if they're social circumstances, there's an authority. And sixes don't want to be the authority because they don't want all eyes on them. So they are always thinking through whether or not they're going to ask a question. Am I going to ask this question or not? And then they think things like, in, in terms of your answer, Jesse, about uh, what does it mean that it's dominant and repressed at the same time? So for her to ask that question, she went through. Probably everybody else in the room already knows the answer to that. And I shouldn't ask it, because if I ask it, it looks like I haven't done my work and I don't know my stuff. And you probably do the same thing. This is not a question I should ask. I'm volunteering, and I should just take the microphone around, because that's Lindsay is the volunteer, and that's what she's supposed to do. And so by the time you're ready, everybody else has moved on. So what happens to you with feelings is, by the time you're ready, it feels like it's too late for you to respond to what happened, even though the feelings are right there for you. This is my language only. I, I, I don't know if this is correct or not, but it works. And that is, I think that emotions are external expressions of feelings. And if you threes will learn to allow yourself to emote as things happen, you won't have to do so much work to express a feeling. It's, it's not that hard. It's that you make it harder because what you cut off is not your feelings, it's your emotions. And what you're cutting off, Lindsay, is your feelings, not your emotions, right? And for anybody who's listening, the Lindsay who asked is not Luke's wife, Lindsay. <laughs> and so I think the answer for 40% of questions that sixes ask is trust yourself. The message that you give yourself while you brush your teeth in the morning that you can't trust yourself is not true. It's just not the truth. And as a three, you trust collective feelings. It's individual feelings that you don't trust. If you can read a whole room, you can read the one person who's sitting across the table from you. Just go with that. I think sometimes with Enneagram work, we just bite off more than we have to, more than we have to. We think we have to change behavior for everybody. People haven't earned that. You don't have to do that. You shouldn't do that. On the feeling piece, um, as a three, like I wanted to just feel like, okay, I'm going to start doing that today. And that isn't how that works. Um, so probably five out of seven days a week I wear a bracelet that says what am I feeling it's sort of annoying it's kind of gross looking now but I mm -hmm. it's work like so 
it, it's real slick when you experience feel, feelings because they just sort of fly off of us, right? Like we are we're really used to batting those away. And so we need to get a little sandpaper edge there to start catching them a little by little. And so having something, that little totem, uh, has made me acknowledge it. And kind of the fact that I don't like it that much sometimes makes it work better. Um, and it's really harder for me to acknowledge the feelings of myself about myself than it is to acknowledge feelings about other people. And so the barrier that I experience is really within myself, even though it seems like out here is where the problem is, but it's really right here. So slow and steady and painful and long. Such good apprentice work. Yeah. All right, one more? Yeah, let's do one more. So I'm a four, so I have a lot of feelings um, that I think I kind of get trapped into, especially relational. Um, so when they're talking, when I'm hearing them talk about it, I feel similar sentiments because I feel like when I'm having, you know, like a discord with a friend or something, I think they can see it all over my face. And, you know, I don't really know how, but I want to be silent in the matter instead of talking about it sometimes because I want to know what I'm truly feeling, is it real or not, or am I just creating these things in my head? So, But then time passes, and I feel like what I should have addressed didn't, doesn't get addressed. So fours, in a way, can can they also experience this? Like, is, am I normal? <laughs> like, <laughs> You're a normal four. I feel four. like I get so... Tra- <laughs> I just feel like, you know, my emotions really set me back a lot of really in relationships because I feel like I get so twisted in my mind. <laughs> um, I think that's true. Actually, I think that's a that's a very honest, well thought out um, awareness that doesn't have to stay that way. But you can't do anything about what you can't name. So I I think you have to accept that the other eight numbers don't appreciate feelings as much as you do. Some of them don't trust their feelings. And you have to lighten up in your expectation that other people can meet you where you are. So when you're in all that feeling stuff, then a good practice for you would be to ask, what got me here? What started all this? What happened that I started making up stuff? What happened that I started to pull back? And then you respond from that place. And from the third place removed, the people you're with can hang in there with you. They they get it. But once you've processed it real quick, which is what you do with feelings, and taking it really deep, people can't catch you. So they, you tell them how you feel, and they kind of go, okay, which breaks your heart, right? And it's because you engage them after you're too far in the process of the feeling. So you can't usually slow that down, so you have to mentally back up and engage them there. So I tried it today with Joe. It didn't go well, but um, I, I tried it by, by saying, um, I, I texted him and said, can you talk? And he said yes. And then I 
said, well, you know, I've been thinking about this thing that we were talking about earlier, and I've been observing my reaction to that. So that was me trying to bring up thinking because I'm thinking repressed. I just feel and do and feel and do. So that was me trying to bring up thinking, and I brought up thinking enough to know what language to use and to approach Joe with, I've been observing me, and then I am not good enough at that yet, so it didn't take long before I was just mad at him. And, and what I'm saying is that's on my side of the fence. And fours are so accustomed to not being heard that they put everything on their side of the fence as you being different or hard for people to understand. And what you need to put the energy on is your method, not your person. Right? So if I had done, if I'd observed myself and done some journaling about it and then contacted Joe, it would have gone much better because he just got a little bit of thinking and a whole lot of feeling. I'm sorry. Thank you all. Luke, thank you, man. Thank uh, you. Everyone, Newsworthy with Norsworthy. You can find it on iTunes at LukeNorsworthy.com mm -hmm. and uh, Got Over Good on Amazon. Is that a good spot to That's find That's perfect, out? yes. Awesome. And if you live in Austin and you're looking for an evangelical parish <laughs> that has Eucharist, every week, go to West Over Hills Church. The Enneagram Journey podcast is produced by Life in the Trinity Ministry. Music is provided by Solve Lighthouse. Professional photography is courtesy of Courtney Perry. We invite you to visit theenneagramjourney.org for more information, and we welcome your questions and comments. Thank you for being with us today.